All right, good morning. Welcome. Sunday, October 10th, where we are faith community, right? Bible Church. My name is Peter, and I'm uh, kind of directing this, I don't know what I call it, this mob today. And, uh, and Matt and Lori and Jillian are leading us in worship. We'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 1. We're starting a new series. So why Nehemiah, you would ask? Um, Thank you, Chris. So I was on vacation this August, and uh, you know I, I got up in the morning, realized I couldn't um, read my Bible from my phone because I had no internet. We were in a great remote location. And so with a, the only Bible that was there was a one-year Bible. So I picked it up, turned it to the day, and lo and behold, it was Nehemiah chapter 1. But even more, as I began to read it, I, I thought, I think there's something in this for FCBC. So I kind of, after that, after some time, I went about my day. I don't know if Lori picked it up the same day or or the the following day. She started reading through it and said exactly the same thing, something along the lines, Peter, I think this is for FCBC. Um, I mentioned this to Dave Day uh, recently, and and he said, well, it seems like an appropriate uh, book, Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, I know two other churches that are actually going through a series on these right now. And it's the reality of... Um, how much the church has changed through COVID and the realization that in some ways we need to rebuild or restart. It's not just us, right? Every church is in this place right now together. And so why not learn from God's word from a a group of people that that was their their focus, their purpose was to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem. Um, So as I've thought about Nehemiah, and I'll just do this as an intro before we begin, I've always thought about it as like, this is the perfect book for something like this, and InterVarsity often uses it with our chapters on campuses when we're restarting a work. But we, we'll, we'll show you a video in a bit, and Tim Mackey says, actually, it's not. It's, that, it's kind of the opposite. So, spoiler alert, um, the problem he says is that the, exiles, uh, the exile didn't work. And neither does the rebuilding of the temple or the rebuilding of the city walls. Um, The hearts of the people have not changed, and and as a result, God does not return to the city. And it's a big disappointment for everyone. So, but even in that, at first I was like, why did I even pick this book? (laughs) And then as we've been talking about it, uh, by the way, um, Scott and Linda Stolfus is joining us for this series, which we're excited about. Um, we actually realize there's a lot to learn from this, not just from the good things they do, but from the mistakes that they make as well, right? It's always good to learn from pe- other people's mistakes so you don't make them yourself. Anyway, so that we're looking forward to that. We're going to begin today, and after worship, we're going to jump into a video. But let me read a psalm. I, I read this often. I think this is a good one for us. And, uh, and then I'll pray briefly, and then Matt, Lori, and Jillian will, will kind of take us into worship. This is Psalm 33. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all its great strength it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine, economic crisis, global pandemic. And we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love, Lord, be with us today, even as we put our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation-laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites, who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes. But it's very strange, because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. 
Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah, that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and where they thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. 
So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yes, great book on rebuilding, right? So, so real quick, I'm just going to do this. Well, uh, we're gonna we're not going to look yet at Nehemiah one. Just your impressions of the video. Anything you think is helpful for us as we think about rebuilding this church to keep in mind as we move forward. That's a lot, but anyone? Color. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Go ahead, Marie. Yeah, yeah. It's important to note what what are the changes that God is calling us to, yeah, versus the ones we think we should make. Yeah, Doug. Yeah, that's a good thing to keep in mind. If anybody, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be just right. If anyone expects perfection, we're the wrong place, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's good. Matt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Primarily, we need to focus on the transformation of the heart over everything else with the hope that then that will bring about the other changes that we want, right? The political and social reform that we desire. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there really was, I mean if I could put it in, put it in my own words, it really was an idol of what of what of the past yeah. of how things looked and the thought that if we just reproduce that we'll have that all again, which they found out didn't happen. You're going to have to look it up on your smartphone. There you go. Is idolization a word was the question. So go go ahead, Linda. Linda, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's interesting, right? So I mean, Linda said was... Uh, you know, she was struck by how, uh, by how different that interpretation was of those books, probably than any of us have had in the past, right? So I, when I'd heard Ezra and Nehemiah in the past, it was kind of grand and glorious. Here's what you do in order to rebuild. But if you look at the whole picture, and I'll be honest with you, in our series, we're not going to. So we, <laughs> that's another thing that I was like, oh, we're, we're only doing the first six chapters of, 
of Nehemiah. We're really blowing it here. But as you do, you recognize how different it is and that there's a lot of other lessons to learn as well. And then Linda said how much of the rest of the Bible is like that, right? How often do we have one interpretation? There might be another. Matt? Yeah. Right. No, that's good. I'm, I'll say it in my own way for those of you who are listening in. Um, I think what Matt was talking about was the reality of perspective. When you look at something from far away, you see clearer than when you're stuck in the middle of it. And you're blinded by your own cultural lenses as well, right? And we have a cultural lens in our culture about what church looks like. And I think one of the easiest things for us to do is to look at other churches and go, we should be like that. That may not be what God's calling us to. That's hard, right? to even accept and realize, um, oh, that church has this, we need that too. Whether it's, a, whether it's a dynamic preacher, I mean, Scott and I are okay, right? So, um, or, um, or, a, or, a great, or a great children's program. You know, you just talk about all these things that are big, giant churches that they have, and is that really who, I mean, that might be who they're called to be, but is that who we're called to be as a body? But I mean, but, you, but the perspective that you have is always going to be um, colored by the lenses that you wear and the reality that you currently face. And so, I mean, that's why it's good to look at the past and learn from their mistakes and ask the Lord, who has a perspective, to show us clearly where we're missing things ourselves and where he wants to redirect us. Whether or not we hear him is another question, right? Or interpret what he's saying correctly. Oh, it's a big deal. I'm sure that in uh, 100 years, people will be looking back on us and going like, oh, can you believe they did this? Yeah. Right? So it's kind of how it works. Well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to do it like I've been doing uh, my past couple talks. Um, uh, Lori's actually going to read the passage to us, and I'm going to have you break up into small groups and discuss this uh, together. I have a couple questions for you. They're not fantastic questions, I admit, um, but... I think some good stuff will come out of it. Yeah, go ahead and pass that out um, around. And then um, after Lori has kind of handed those out, why don't you break up into groups of like three or four or whatever that you want so you have people to talk it about, talk with it. And then as soon as Lori's done reading it, she's going to read it, we'll be able to jump right into the passage. And I'll go, I'll go ahead and pray. And for those of you who are online, I, I did send a Zoom link out. If you do want to join in on a conversation, you can... Call into Zoom, and we'll, um, we'll have a conversation um, on Zoom. And you can stay in this video feed at the same time if you want to do that. Yeah, so Lord, uh, we, we recognize that we have uh, lenses on that, that cloud our judgment, even as, we, even as how we see um, the Israelites uh, back in the day. And, uh, and so we ask God for your eyes to see uh, clearly not only their, their reality, but ours as well. Um, are there things you want to tell us and teach us through this series? We just ask that you would do that. And in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. 
So Lori's going to come up and read it. And as you, as you listen, um, you just ask the Lord, Lord, what is it from this you want to teach us? And, all right? Do you want to hold on to it? Or you can just read it from here. I apologize in advance for butchering the Hebrew names. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those that had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At the time, I was cupbearer to the king. So real quick, before we jump into that uh, discussion, I'll give you a little bit of background that will help if you don't know this already. Um, So uh, I think it's important to have a perspective on Jerusalem if you don't already. I, I I read this in... Uh, and I thought this was appropriate. Um, uh, Jerusalem is uh, the soul of the Jewish people. It's the beating heart of the land of Israel. That includes the temple, of course, right? Conquerors dating back to the Assyrian king, uh, Sennacherib, the first invader who destroyed most of Israel and exiled 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, understood that without sacking the holy city of Jerusalem, Israel remained attached to its land. And so they recognized that it was so important to them in order to break the power, they had to completely and utterly destroy it, right? And that's something that you need to note as you go into this. Um, So um, we know that at the time uh, already that said Ezra had, the temple was rebuilt. We know that the city was in the process of being built as well. And there's indication that it meant the walls were already being rebuilt at this time. But what happened was the current king, the one that Nehemiah served under, as far as I understood, stopped the building of the walls and stopped the rebuilding of, the, of Jerusalem because he was suspicious of the Jewish people. And it probably had to do with some of the opposition that was around Jerusalem and some of the people who were unhappy. 
Um, anyway, so that's the context in which this happened. So when he, so when he gets the news and he hears the walls are com, have come down, are no longer up, he may be referring to the fact that they were still down. He may be, they may be referring to the fact that they've been partially rebuilt and then torn down again. That's unclear, right? Um, but what you need to know is that um, walled cities at the times provided safe places for people, you know, um, to rebuild, right? Uh, to uh, for ec ec the economy to run. And without walls, the, the city was defenseless and helpless and would never recover. So that's something that you need to keep in mind as to what's somewhat behind some of what Jeremiah, uh, Nehemiah is praying. All right. Anyway, uh, go ahead and break up in your groups and discuss. We'll give you about, you know, 15 minutes till about 10, a little after 10 after um, to work through these questions. Right. Yeah. So we're going to... We're going to answer my four questions in two parts. We're going to put one and two together and three and four, all right? And just like we've done in the past, I'm just going to pass the mic off to whoever wants to. Um, I've always been impressed by this passage because it's one of the best examples of what people call representational confession. You're not just confessing for yourselves as a priestly blessing confession, but confessing on behalf of your people. Whether you were a part of it or not, it's your people and you still have responsibility in it. Um, and so it's important. Uh, that's the idea behind this. And this is powerful and an effective kind of prayer. Um, I've often prayed and I know other intercessors have as well. But, so, but as you were reading through the passage or you listened to it, what impressed you or stood out about Nehemiah's response? And what do you think his passion and purpose is in the prayer to God? And maybe this is too easy. It's like, oh, that's a stupid question. you know. But I just wanted to get you to be thinking and dialoguing about it. Um, so, okay, we're going to have to, so people can hear you. That's all I really have. I think he kind of does all the right things. You know, he, he follows all the protocol to confess himself and to confess for the people and what they were doing wrong and praising God. You know, it's kind of like he goes through fasting, praying, you know, everything seems like he's doing the right stuff. One of the things that um, Marie mentioned in our group was um, he takes some personal ownership. There's something about it that kind of I need to do. Or yeah, it, he takes personal ownership rather than praying for those people in Jerusalem. Would you help them? It's like I'm one of them and I'm part of the problem. And yeah. Well, one, one thing I learned through studying <laughs> the the passage in depth is it's actually also copied from Deuteronomy 31 through 6. Lines are copied where Joshua is going to land. So that's kind of a cool added, like he was clearly studying this. Yeah, it's obvious Jeremiah knows, um, uh, he knows, this, Nehemiah knows the scripture. He knows Jeremiah, that's sorry, I was going to say that, and the other prophets as well. Because a lot of why he's praying this prayer is because of his understanding of what God had promised. But you're right. This is a, a verse for verse or word for word um, scripture that he's praying. Uh, Susan was sharing how Nehemiah was really safe. He didn't need to engage in this problem. Uh, he was cupbearer to the king, so he had privilege. 
but Erica was talking about how in Peru there was an accident uh, that involved fire and about 50 people died, and she talked about how that, even though she didn't know this, these people, this area, it really brought her to tears, empathy and identification. So those are pieces of the passion. He's involving himself. These are not necessarily uh, people he knows, but he's got a great deal of empathy. Anyone want to share about what his purpose might be behind this prayer? I mean, besides the obvious. So, I, you know, I mean, um, it's important to note that uh, it was practice, common practice, at least they've, they've, they found out during the exile to have days of prayer and fasting about this. Uh, so they may have prayed this prayer you know, to the Lord, right, in desire to see change. Um, but it was also, note, again, their identity was wrapped up in Jerusalem, right, in the, in the city and in the temple, uh, being restored and God's presence being with them. You think about, for me, one of the passages that came to my mind was in Exodus 33 where Moses says to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us. How, how will anyone know that we're different from anyone else in the land? And, th- and they longed for that. That's why the, in the video that we saw the overview, the elders were upset and wept. You know, what would set them apart? There was nothing. God, and it was almost as if God had turned his back on them, I'm, I'm guessing. So there was definitely a desire for a restoration to what was, right? And a desire for what, what had been to be restored. So what do you, when you think about our, Doug, did you want to add something? Well, you, you asked about the purpose specifically. You're I don't know how significant this is, but in asking you a question about the purpose, he clearly is praying for success for Israel in Jerusalem. But then very specifically, he's about to go speak to the king, and so he's asking for, I think the purpose is very practical and immediate in that, in that regard. I mean, you know that there is a longing in his heart, as there was in all of the people at that time, for the kingdom to be restored. So he doesn't just want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He wants Israel to be, re- or Judah, to be restored, right? For them to regain their position of, of power that they had in the region and their favor with God over other people. Um, and so there's definitely that behind this as well, okay? So this is good. All right, so we'll, let's go on to the next one. This is a little bit more focused on us, like in application. Um, and kind of what kinds of things did you guys talk about that you would like to see built up or restored here at FCBC? Right? And, then, and then even more, as we consider the reality of this passage and the whole book, because we saw the, the, you know, the spoiler right, on the video, um, what, uh, the fact that they rebuilt the wall, we'll get there, right, and, and that God's glory didn't return. I mean, couldn't Nehemiah have prayed for something different than he did? Could we pray for something different than we are? Maybe what should we be praying for? So I don't know what you guys talked about, but I would love to hear it. Is, uh, do we know, is, is he the author of this book? Because I just, I always, you know, with Mackie's presentation and stuff, I you stop and think, okay, 
So if, if he is the author, just that aspect of writing third person about yourself and kind of, yeah, yeah. and, uh, and, and then and knowing that, okay, I'm recording this for posterity and what am I trying to communicate? And even to show your own failings, like, well, we did all this, but then that, like closure. Yeah. Someone else edited the book, brought together a bunch of, of um, journals and things that had been written. Or, yeah, I'm sure that even at, at Nehemiah, Nehemiah, as a person who was sent out by the king, had to keep a record of what, what, what happened. So that was probably part of it as well. That's, that's good. I'm sorry we don't know the answer to that. Scott will have an answer next week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Linda has the answer. Okay. Um, good. No, thank you. So, but going back to the question for us, like, what did you talk about things you'd like to see built up or restored? And, um, what, you know, what, what should we be praying for and why? Okay. We got a several here. So we'll start with, uh, Eric and then. Yeah, I think, I think what FCBC has always had, uh, a strong, um, presence in, in is, is about <coughs> core relationships. In other words, you know, we've always had this, this house group culture, and we've all, always put a lot of focus on having places where people could be deeply relational one another. And it seems like that is, you know, not the core of a lot of evangelical churches in our nation. I mean, I've just gone through all of the podcasts on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and I'm really struck by how how the way that programs and um, and big preachers became the focus in and the relational culture was really very weak and shallow. And so I think that with going forward for faith community, it's how to draw people into that deep rela relational reality where the love we have for one another is the core identity and transformation, character transformation is really important and key to actually reaching other people in the community. But that's, that's, that's a difficult sell in a very self-centered, consumer-driven American culture. I don't think it's a difficult sell. I think it's a very good, like, I think that's attractive. <laughs> anyway, just as hope. I think that's really what people are hungry for right now. Yeah, I mean, people want something that's real, right? I think deep down. Good. Keep, keep going. Anyone else? Comments, thoughts? Even as you've been praying, well, how's the Lord been leading you to pray for the church? That You can add that as well. Sue, thank you. Um, I guess from what I want to see built up and restored, uh, that each believer's heart is loving God and growing into God actively. There isn't a middle person. It's you growing closer and increasing in your love to God and then knowing his ways because uh, we're, we're very swayed and distracted by culture, but 
So then we, we need to know his ways and then to be moving more in power. I think we uh, realize that the kingdom of God is powerful. We know that as noetic, but we want to be moving in the numinous, the actual uh, dynamic power flowing out through us. That way, touching people in the world so that they know that God is real. Um, and we're not quite certain how to do that. When I am just like today trying to insert myself in a Nehemiah story and then draw parallels with our present situation with the building project and um, the um, just COVID and how we haven't returned to normal gatherings, et cetera, and the impact that's having on us. Um, and then again, at least the story the narrator uh, paints at the end that the issue f for the people isn't so they get certain facilities restored uh, and maybe certain cultural practices restored but there's still something that's missing as far as the presence of God and the glory of God in their lives and in their community and their worship and so I then pull back and say okay as a church you know, we're kind of in this holding pattern about what's going to happen with our facilities um, and our, our, the experiences of worship, house groups, Sunday gatherings, et cetera, that we're accustomed to aren't fully back. So then what are the, are, are there things that we are implementing as individuals and as a community to continue to build that, um, address, address issues of hearts, the, our hearts being cold towards God, um, and are we growing in our faith, growing spirituality? What are the tools that we have that we can access, that we can utilize, that help us grow deeper with God? Because in the end, facilities will come and go, and uh, the expressions of liturgy and church will change and evolve. But one of the constants is the individual's relationship with God and knowing his word and following after him. Yep. So I want to I want to add on that, not to take it away, but the individual is very important, but so is the communal yeah. expression. So I know you didn't you, you weren't saying that wasn't. Um, so, but we emphasize both, right? Both your your personal relationship with Jesus and our corporate relationship as well. And our corporate relationship is very much dependent on how we love one another, not just how we worship together, right? And, the, and building up in that relationship and, and, and continuing to like walk through this life, regardless of what we face, the ups and downs and the difficulty, even the hard things we're facing right now as a community, and I'm speaking to some of the people out there, right? We have to do that together, not alone. Um, and I know it's, it's, uh, it's hard, but I think it's one of the things we can definitely pray for, deeper intimacy with Christ, right? Deeper intimacy with the Lord as a body and as individuals. I started... A, an Ignatian uh, small group that I, and I'm required to spend f 45 minutes to an hour in prayer every day. Now, Sue and Matt are probably like, no, big deal. I'm sorry, for me, that's extremely hard. Um, and it's part of it, you know, and some, I, the only time I can do that is 7 a.m. So I'm in bed uh, in, another, in the, in the uh, study, reading, thinking, God, please help me not to fall asleep, you know, as I'm doing it. But as I've been doing it, the reflecting on scripture more and more, even alone, because I'm not good at that. I like doing it in groups, 
I have another group that I do that with every day as well. That has been life-giving, right? God's been speaking love to me. And I've been realizing I have a barrier to believing that God loves me, which is weird to say. Because I'm real, it's really good. I can do help others experience that really easily. But it's all part of what God's calling us to in this season. So let, let me just say this, and I think that's kind of the emphasis of this, and it comes out in his um in in the uh, uh, in the Bible Projects video. Um, my question was how different Ezra and Nehemiah would have looked if at the center of everything that they did was a love for God and a love for one another and their neighbor. You know, if they'd taken the greatest commandment and they li- and they lived it out like it it was imprinted on their hearts and minds. And that's who they were as a people, loving people. How much different that might have looked. What would have happened? And we were going to get into these questions. Would they have, re- would they have built a wall? Would they, have just have, would they have even built a temple? You know what I mean? All of these things. Remember, it was pre-Jesus. So yes, possibly. We don't know. But, we, but it'd be very interesting. I wish we could, like, God, show me history and how it would look if this happened, right? Uh, how different would they have been their relationship with the people around them? Not just the people who were Jewish, right? but even the ones who weren't. And that's the kind of thing we have to be thinking of as we move forward, and that's part of what this series is going to be about, right? So let me just pray for us. We're out of time, but as and we, we need more time to intercede together as a body. But Lord, we do pray that you would help us to grow in intimacy with you alone and together, and that our church would be one where love is at the center, our love for you, our, our heart, our soul, our minds, like all of them for you together, and, and all of them for each other. And we would love our neighbors, we would love each other, and love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And in an individualistic um, society and community, that's so important. So we ask for your help, Jesus, to be that kind of people. And we ask for ways to even do that and build that up in our body as we're going through this series and beyond. And we, we say, Lord, we, we have dreams and visions for what we want, what was and we would like restored, but may not be. So we, we just ask your help. We lay all that on your altar. And we say, God, you show us what the future looks like and what you want FCBC to become. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.